Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. copy of God's Word, once you find the book of Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to be at tonight. Welcome to the admin. Again, just to let you know why we're doing this is because we're giving preference to the little muchachitos and muchachitos, that's the little kiddos that are at VBS. And so God is um, hopefully speaking to their little hearts. And if you don't know much about Jesus, here's what Jesus would say about little kids. Hey, bring them to me. Like, let's hang. And, and he would say that you can learn a lot about his way of life by hanging out with little kids. And so I was there last night with my little kids and it's going down. It's awesome. It's kind of like herding cats. There's a lot more order and structure in this place. And so some of y'all need to be thanking God that you're not over there volunteering. But we are praying for them and we are so grateful that you were flexible and you got here tonight. I've already met several people that this is your first time. And so I just want to remind you if it's your first time, we will be back at the building that's just a, you know, a rock's throw from here next week as we conclude our series Hot Takes. And I am excited that you are here for week three of Hot Takes. If you don't know what a hot take is, We can't help you, but let me just kind of help you out a little bit. It's like an opinion that's a little bit edgy, all right? And we've been looking at these cultural things that have popped up on the surface over the last couple of years, and we just said, hey, let's give a hot take to my body, my choice. Let's give a hot take to good vibes, and we are continuing that series tonight. Before we get in, um, y'all were a little bit chatty earlier during the MC, and so that just tells me that y'all want to talk. And so I'm going to give out a a prompt, and I'm going to give you an opportunity just to have like two minutes of conversation. And this one question will really mine the depths of the person or the people that you're sitting next to. You can learn a lot about people by this one question. And here it is. You ready? If you were any animal in the world, what would you be and why? Y'all talk about that real quick. Any animal in the world, what would you be and why? So um, I love asking that question. One of my favorite things to do with my kids, and if you haven't done this in Kansas City, you need to go to our zoo. Like, don't sleep on the KC Zoo, all right? It's awesome. And you go there, they have like free-ranging kangaroos. And um, we went to the zoo about a month ago, and I saw a gorilla fight. It was epic, like beating their chest, chasing each other, like swiping at each other, like Nate Diaz stuff, right? And I saw that, and, um, and I like taking my kids to the zoo, and, and here's what I like doing. I like to just help them celebrate the diversity of God's creation. Um, my daughter, she's into koalas right now, one of them, so they have a koala exhibit at the zoo right now. And, and also just like saying to them, like, you know, that is a very large, you know, giraffe or camel or whatever the thing is. And from their perspective, they're like, yes, that's very large. But I'll inform them that, hey, we have dominion over that animal. That I like getting there and like looking through the glass or through the bars. And, I'm, and I always feel really, really grateful for like the big gap that exists between us and the male lion exhibit, you know. And so I'm like, yeah, because I'll be bold, but, but if there wasn't that gap there, I wouldn't be as bold. And I like teaching them like there is a distinct difference between the way God made us as people and the way God made them as animals, right? Like, like I, would, I would bargain that we would all kind of agree on the same page. Like if, if there was a threat um, going on between my kids and let's say the polar bear, like most of us would you know, you need, to, you need to dress your kids, you know, like we would need to take care of the kids because there's something more valuable about, about people than animals. So I don't know if you know this or not, but I was doing some research for this message. And all of this really was bizarre to me when I found out 
that, that just about 100 years ago, that in our state, there were people on display at a zoo. That in the early 1900s, people were sold into slavery after slavery had been illegal for decades. And they were not only sold into slavery, but they were sold into slavery to be paraded before people at the St. Louis Fair. And they were paraded before people and people jeered at them. People hurled insults at them. And people marveled at them the way that we marvel at animals in a zoo. And here's a picture of one of the famous people, Oda Binga. You can see Oda right here, and he was believed to be an animal. First brought to St. Louis, and his final stop was years at the Bronx Zoo, living in a cage with other primates. Tragically, Oda took a gun to his chest, and he killed himself in the early 1900s. And this was happening all in the West. This wasn't just an America thing. In, in Western Europe, there were displays at zoos, much like the one that I just described to you, where people and their children, they would go and they would, they would look at people. And they would think about people the way, that, the, way, the way that we think about kangaroos. Intrigue, but looking at, I am more superior and better than that person. And, and there's things like this that have given to the narratives that we brought in here tonight. And the reason why I start there with Oda and the reason why I start there with this scenario is because we've come in here tonight and, and we don't have people in zoos anymore. But the residue of this type of racism is in our nation and in the world and it's not coming off easily. So, so we've come in here and there's like all sorts of responses to racism and mistreating people. And so you, we've seen over the last year uh, kind of an uptick in responses and in the, in the publicity of those things. We've seen people protest. We've seen legislation come to pass over the past. We've seen poems written. We've seen sermons preached or heard them preached. We've read books about this. We've watched movies about this, listened to songs about this. And the narrative, it's been silenced. The narrative has been shouted. The narrative has been twisted. It's been told straight. And it's all over the place. And there are these trickles of truth in every little narrative that we receive through our media outlets. But there's also floods of fallacy in them all. And so we've come in here tonight and there's like this gumbo of emotions this gumbo of narratives and experiences and problems and solutions and frustrations. And there's been this phrase that has surfaced that has somewhat dominated the narrative. And the phrase is, you got to stay woke. And some of y'all know exactly what that means. You're, you're here and you know what that means. And, and you would say that, that you are woke. And others of you would say, I know exactly what it means, but, but I'm not woke. Some of y'all are too woke. And I want to talk about what it looks like to stay woke tonight and give you a hot take on that. Let me give you a definition real quick. You see it behind me popping up. It says this, that woke is that you are alert to injustice and discrimination in society, especially racism. That staying woke, to put it simply, staying woke means that you're actively aware of racism. And so here's my hot take in the title of tonight's message on staying woke. The hot take is this, Jesus invented it. Jesus invented it. And here's what I want you to see tonight from God's word. I, I want to call you to get woke. I also want to call you to get to work. 
And before we leave tonight, I want to talk about how we can make woke work. Now, the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, it's chock full of messy people. And so maybe you've come in here and you're like, I don't know why I'm in a church. Like, if they only knew, you're in good company. And if you read this book, you'll find that you're in good company in this book. That the Bible's full of people who, who have problems. The Bible calls it sin. You may call it mistakes. I don't know what you call it. But we all, nobody's perfect. We all got issues. And the Bible's full of these people who have problems. They call it sin in the Bible. But their life gets changed by Jesus. And one of those sinners, one of his main issues in the Bible that we're going to meet tonight is, is a guy that struggled with racism. But when he met Jesus, he became one of the greatest reconcilers to the world. And so when I say that Jesus invented getting woke, what I mean by that is that Jesus came to redeem all of mankind and to unify all of the diversity, all of the differences, and to bring us into one harmonious family. And you can't be a harmonious family if you turn a blind eye to division. And so this guy, he, he meets Jesus and he understands all of that and he begins to give his, his, his life to, to following Jesus and, and Jesus was helping him understand that, that Christianity isn't black, Christianity isn't white, it isn't red, it isn't yellow, but it's all of the spectrum. And this guy's words, he wrote down over half of the New Testament and his words, man, they have stirred the hearts of people towards love and reconciliation and towards Jesus for centuries. And so we're looking at the oldest letter that was written in the New Testament or the second part of your Bible tonight. And we're going to see how one of the most woke Christians drifted back into racism and how, to one, how one of the most racist Christians called this guy out for it. And so there's a little drama and I'm excited. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The guy that's writing this is a guy named Paul and, and here's what he says. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, Paul, I withstood him to his face. That's a key phrase, because he was to be blamed. And so you have this scene, right, where, where Paul's coming and he's talking to Peter and he's like, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. Like he, he holds Peter out to his face. I love Paul. Paul's like a bulldog, man. When he sees right, he sees it right. And he's like, man, I've got to say something. And so he says something to Peter and he calls him out. In verse 12, it says this. This is why he's calling him out. For before certain men came from James... He would eat with the Gentiles. So, so the certain men that came from James, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and James was kind of a big deal in the hometown of, of Jesus or the home area, Jerusalem. And so these guys from Jerusalem have come over to Antioch. They're hanging out with Peter. If you don't know who Peter is, that's one of Jesus' boys. They did life together for a few years. And so you got these people, and it says this, that Peter, again in verse 12, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when those people came, here, here's what he did. He withdrew and separated himself fearing those who were of the circumcision. So let me just kind of tell you again what's going on here. If you're new to the Bible, you have really two big camps of people that you're gonna see in the Bible. You're gonna have, you're gonna have um, the Jews, God's people is what they believe that they are, and then you're gonna have the Gentiles, and the Gentiles just kind of represent those people, all right? And so you have God's people, and those people, all right? And, and so what's happening is, is that Peter has these people who represent God's people. They're Jewish, they have a similar upbringing, they have similar styles, they have similar diets, and so he's, he's got that backdrop, but now he's been hanging out with those people or the Gentiles, but when his people show up, he now gets uncomfortable that he's hanging out with those people and he, slip, he slips back into sameness. And that's the party of the circumcision. That's the Jews, all right? So I don't know if you see what's going on. This is the drama that's unfolding. 
And Paul is holding Peter out. He's saying, you can't do this. See, what Peter is wrestling with is this racist tendency. His racism was rooted in his traditions. His racism was rooted in his nationality. And so he's, he's stopping hanging out with people that were different than him, and he's drifting back towards to people that were the same as him. That what he was struggling with is this form of pride that says, I can't put my finger on it, but I believe deep down inside, I'm better than you. And this isn't just a Peter thing. That every one of us have come in here tonight, no matter what your background is, and we all have a pride problem that plays itself out in all sorts of differences and difficulties and problems. So in verse 13, it says this, that, that Peter has done all this, and it says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Notice the language there. They played the hypocrite with Peter, and it says, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Well, so what Paul is pointing out is that there's this guy named Barnabas, and Barnabas is the guy that can get along with anybody. He can roll in any camp, and he's like, his, his name literally means encourager, all right? And, and so what Paul is trying to say is that, Peter, your decisions to separate and withdraw from the Gentiles is now influencing all of the people that think like you, that walk like you, that talk like you, even Barnabas, man, like you even swayed Barnabas, the one guy that was gonna like mediate and bring all the people together, you even messed with him. Point number one, if you're taking notes now, you could write this down, get woke. Get woke. See, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to alert Peter to the discrimination that he's displaying. He, he's saying to Peter, Peter, you need to be woke. You need to have awareness that what you're doing is not in alignment with the people of God. Now, again, this scene is so crazy when you do some backstory, some back study on these two guys, Paul and Peter. Like, like Paul is calling out Peter for not eating with those people. And Paul was getting on to Peter for not being woke. But again, Peter's like the OG woke Christian. Like, like Peter and Jesus, they're good friends. Peter's the guy that helped start the church. And in Acts chapter 10, God gives Peter a special vision that really helps set the trajectory for the church at large. It's in Acts 10, and Peter sees like all of these animals. It's like he has a dream that he's at the zoo. And, and all these animals come down, and, and there's like what he would classify as clean animals and unclean animals. And, and so there's like, there's like deer and cattle, and there's like crocodiles and pigs. And, and he would say, the deer and cattle, those are good. We can hang with those. But the crocodiles and pigs, we can't. But what, what Peter gets in his vision is that God is saying, look, all of them are clean. And this was God's way of telling Peter that the gospel, the movement that I came to bring is for all people. That Peter, just because you're a Jew and you're God's people makes you no more lovable, available to God, and no better. And so Peter, like out of this dream, he goes and he shares the gospel with this guy named Cornelius. And, and the gospel begins to permeate into different cultures through the church. And so Peter was this guy that woke up to this reality. But he has this tendency, and we all do, to drift back into sameness. And so Paul comes and he he says, man, you got you to change, bro. And what's crazy, again, is that Paul is like the OG racist. Like, like Paul was so racist that he was killing his own people for not being Jewish enough. 
Like that's his backdrop. And then God changes Paul's heart with the gospel. He changes. He becomes woke to the gospel, and it changed how he saw people. We got to wake up to some issues in our society, y'all. I hate that we're having to talk about this, but it's still a pervasive reality within our society. That the problem that it was existing with Peter was that he was letting his race dictate his response instead of his relationship with Jesus. And we do the same thing all the time. That racism is a reality in our society. That that the reason why there are riots, the reason why there's protests, the reason why there's all the stuff that we've been a part of and seen and witnessed and maybe participated in over the last few months is because we are reaping the consequences of our past as a nation. Now, I love America. I I love the U.S. of A. Now, I'm so proud of our nation. I've got families, family members that have fought in wars, and I've got all of that. Like, I'm proud of just our pioneering spirit. And 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 when I watch the Olympics, I'm like, U.S. You know, I just love that we got got more gold than Solomon, right? I just love it. And I just love that we get to be a part of this country. And and, and I'm so proud of all of the things that, that this country has afforded me. And if you haven't traveled outside of the USA, you need to do that. And it will give you, like, when you land on American soil, you're like, oh, thank God for America, right? Like, you will deeply appreciate the stability of our nation. But our nation still has issues. We have stains on our stars and stripes. And one of those stains is racism. One activist said in the 20th century that America's chickens have come home to roost. And what he meant by that was that you can't build an economy on slavery and not expect there to be problems. That we've gotta be honest and we've gotta wake up to the problems that our country has. Let me put it this way, I love my parents and I'm sure you love your parents too, but nobody's parents are perfect, right? And and there are things that my parents, they sacrificed. My mom brought me into this world, I was almost a 10 pound baby, you know, and so she she labored to get me here. And uh, and then she took care of me and my my parents, they went without so that we could have and and they, they did so many great things, but there are definitely things that my parents did or didn't do that I would like to redo, you know what I'm saying? And so there are things in my family that I'm extremely proud of But it's my time to perpetuate the things I'm proud of and to change the things I'm not. Like, like how crazy would it be if I try to convince you that I have a perfect family? You'd be like, first of all, we've hung out enough to know that ain't true, all right? You're the byproduct, right? But if I tried to live in this world where I, I believed that my family was without flaw, then what I would do is I would unwittingly perpetuate the problems of my family's past. And so we have to get woke to the reality that there are issues in our past. Because if we look at our nation's history and we, and we don't see the problems, then we will unwittingly perpetuate the problems of our past. But caution, if all we do is throw rocks at our fathers in history and we demonize them and criticize them, then we will also fail to perpetuate the beauty that has led us to the nation we have today. And so there's a tension to manage, but we have to get woke to the reality that there are still problems that we have to face. And that's what's going on here with Peter and Paul. Like Peter believed that all people are precious in God's sight, but he was functionally denying that belief with his life. It literally says here that he withdrew and separated himself out of fear of people. And Paul's like, bro, you're you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. 
you're being a hypocrite and you're leading other people to be hypocritical too. It says that these certain men from James came. And again, James was the half-brother of Jesus and he has a letter in the New Testament as well. And, and James uses this word that's really the first time that it's introduced in this way in all of human history. And so James, in James chapter two, he says this. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So you get it, right? James is saying, if you live a life where you show favoritism or preference towards people, this is wrong. Uh, favoritism to be defined is, it comes from a Greek word that I don't know how to say, um, and it just goes, goes like this, that, that it's someone who judges by appearance and gives special treatment to what they see on the exterior. And this word is found only in Christian writings as something that's wrong. Aristotle, he's a very influential person in history, he would say this, that some men were born to be slaves and some men were born to be masters. It's fatalistic. And he would, he would be brought up in a world and he would construct a worldview that sees nothing wrong with this. But only in the New Testament do you begin to see that slavery, isms of any regard are wrong. James, he goes on in James 2 verse 9, he says this, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And, and so what James is doing right here is he's saying, we should not be marked by any sort of ism, classism, racism, nationalism. And if we do, we are on the same level as murder. That he's saying you have to treat favoritism like you treat murder. So like last week, we're talking about my body, my choice, and giving a hot take on that. And here's what we said is that, that if, you are, um, if you are in that world of, of, of supporting abortion, then, then biblically, you are supporting murder. Go back, I don't have time to explain all of it. But, but a lot of us, we were like, we were righteously angry at that. And if you come here and you're, you're like, righteously, that's a problem, we, we, should, we should stand up, we should make a difference, and we should help end that sort of thing. But you don't feel the same level of righteous anger towards racism, that's a problem. The, the Bible would say that, that we need to stand and shout out against both. And that James is putting racism, favoritism, on the same level as murder, but I don't think we see it like that. Like, I feel like that, that my experience personally and then my experience pastorally, like I just never have I really had the thought that I need to go to my, my community group and, and we talk about the struggles that we have. And like I can't recall, as I was thinking, I can't recall once where I went to group and, I, and they're like, hey man, how have you been grieving the spirit? And I was like, you know what? I've just been really racist this week. Like, like I, I don't think I've ever said that. And then I started thinking like pastorally, like we'll counsel a lot of people and, and, and people come up and, and they'll be broken over something that they got into. And, and I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, man, I, I'm struggling with alcohol or I'm, I'm struggling with pornography or I'm struggling with, with, with sleeping with people or I'm struggling with anxiety or I'm, you know, we kind of have like these, these you know, categorically, I, you know, I'm not really taken by surprise by a lot of things. Never have I ever had somebody come down and just say, man, I'm a racist. Like I think that 
there's one of two reasons why. One is that I've never been racist in my life, and you've never been racist in your life. That could be one, one answer, so that's why we never talk about it. Or we're not woke to our own brokenness. And I would think it's the latter and not the former. And that we need to wake up and we need to see the brokenness within our heart that downstream of pride comes all forms of sin. And one of those sins is that we will, from a place of pride, look at a people group and think that we're better than them because they have a different level of melanin in their skin. Or another form of pride is that we will self-deprecate our people and we'll look down the stream from pride and we'll think lowly of ourselves, and we'll think that someone's better than us because they're from a certain neighborhood. And both are wrong. And we have to elevate this sin to the right place so that we can begin to deal with it properly. And we can't excuse it on our upbringing. We can't excuse it on what's in the news or our political agenda. We have to see it like God sees it. This was a new idea that the Bible introduces to the world that seeing people as lesser than you is wrong. And so the church, it's been woke since the Bible was written. Jesus, he invented it. And Paul is simply perpetuating what Jesus taught him. And he's correcting Peter. And he's saying, you are living like a hypocrite. Like, notice that Paul's not correcting Peter's preaching. He's correcting his practice. Notice that Paul's not calling Peter a heretic. He's calling him a hypocrite. That a lot of us, we have the right theology, but we are asleep to the racism that exists in us all. And until you see that you are born broken, until you get out of the slumber of your sin, we won't change. And racism is a reality in all people, in the majority and in the minority, and we need to be woke. Paul, he goes on in verse 14, and here's what he says, continuing this conversation. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, note that, Paul calls him out before everybody because Peter's sin was before everybody. He says, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles, not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? He's like, Peter, like, bro, help me understand. Why are you over here with the Gentiles crunching on some crispy bacon, but then when your boys from James show up, you're like still eating your bacon, but you're like, all right, well, I'm gonna go eat my bacon over here. And he's like, you're not even, and you're like telling them that they need to be more Jewish, but you're, you're not even being Jewish. Like, it's just confusing, Peter. And he's like, you're, you're living a double life, and it's confusing. And he goes on in verse 15, he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, kind of mocking Peter a little bit. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He's reminding Peter of some things. He says, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He says, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again on those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. So what Paul's saying, let me just kind of put this in layman's turn. He's reminding Peter 
of the gospel. And he's saying in a language that Peter would understand, he's like, bro, what are you doing? Let me remind you of how we are all on the same team, how we're all in the same family. And he's saying, like, bro, remember the gospel has changed us. We didn't earn this. But you walked with Jesus, Peter. (laughs) Why are you drifting back into superiority? Let me remind you that we didn't earn the grace of God. And therefore, we're no better than anybody else. Point number two, if you're taking notes tonight, you can write this down. Get to work. Get to work. See, it's not enough to be aware of the problem. You've got to do something about it. And Paul's solution to Peter's problem wasn't protesting against Peter. You know, he, he, went, to, he went to Peter's face, not his Facebook, all right? He didn't start posting against Peter. He simply went to Peter and he preached the gospel that the solution that Paul proposes is to remind Peter of the gospel. Some of you maybe need a, a, a refresh course on what the gospel is. If the gospel's the solution, let me just kind of give you one of the ways that the gospel gives the solution and how Jesus, he initiated this movement that was meant to be for all people. He did it in one of the craziest ways. He comes to this woman in John chapter four and it's high noon and, and she's a, a woman, she's of a different race, And this is the first person that Jesus chooses to reveal himself to. How's that for woke? And he's demolishing all of these isms, sexism, classism, racism, and he's cutting through it with revealing who he is. And this woman, she was was thirsty in more ways than one. Her issue was that she liked men. And so Jesus, he's like asking her, like, uh, what what are you looking for and she's not really following, and then he's like, I, I can give you satisfaction for your soul. And so they're standing around this well, and Jesus begins to say, I'm here as the savior of the world. And he looks at this woman who she would have thought she was the worst outcast. They had nothing in common. And he looks at her in the eyes and said, I'm here for you. And every one of us, we have a metaphorical well that we're standing around. And the gospel tells us this, that we were born into this world and eventually we find a well in which we are trying to full, or trying to pull up buckets of satisfaction. And some of you are here and the well that you're standing around is, is the well of, of, of you, you, want, you want to be loved, you want to feel significant and so you're, you're pulling up buckets of, of bad relationships. Some of you, you're standing around a well and when you think about racism and and all the injustices, you want retribution and you want things to be made right. And you think if if we could get that to happen, you're trying to pull up that well. And some of you are here and you're standing around wells and you're pulling up buckets that have holes in them and they can't hold any water that can satisfy your parched soul. And the gospel tells us that Jesus came on a rescue mission to die on a cross, raised from the grave, so that he could be the thing that satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. No man will satisfy you. No woman will satisfy you. No amount of money will satisfy you. No amount of retribution will satisfy you. Only Jesus will satisfy you. And once we understand this gospel and we put our faith in it, it changes our identity. And this is what Paul's trying to remind Peter of. He's like, bro, this gospel, it changed us. This gospel is for all people. 
This gospel, it brought us new life. It brought us into a new family. That's why Paul would go on to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he would say, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He said, if you've believed in this gospel, now you're a part of the family. He says in verse 27, for as many as For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he gives this amazing statement of of equality. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let me explain this. I'm going to give you a scientific example and then an English lesson, all right? So I know it's summer, but let's get back in school real quick, okay? And so here's the scientific example. I want you to think about the gospel like this great emulsifier. Now, if you don't know what an emulsifier is, welcome to the club. But I I looked it up this week, and an emulsifier is this agent that brings unity between things that would be once divided. So think about, like, I don't know if you ever made, like, balsamic vinaigrette dressing. You get a little vinegar. And, and you get a little oil, and you get some other things, and you got to get in and you shake it up, and you got to pour it on a salad quick, because if you, if you don't pour it on a salad quick and you just let it sit, it's going to separate, right? And I want you to compare that to mayonnaise. I don't know if you ever looked at mayonnaise, but you buy mayonnaise, and you put it in the fridge, and, uh, and then when you pull it out of the fridge, it still looks like mayonnaise. But mayonnaise basically has the same things that balsamic vinaigrette has, except mayonnaise has an emulsifier. And the emulsifier is the egg yolk. And so mayonnaise, basically, recipe is this. You get a little bit of vinegar, you get a little bit of oil, and then when you put an egg yolk in there, it emulsifies, and it brings the oil and vinegar together, and they stick. Here's the point. The gospel is the great emulsifier. That what would classically divide Typically, differences divide us, right? They, they look different. Their hair's different. They, they smell different. They eat different. They live in a different place. Whatever it is, differences in the world, they divide. But in the gospel, it's an emulsifier. And, and the emulsifier of the gospel, it brings the differences together and it unites them never to be divided again. That the gospel is the solution that we need this gospel every day. That's why Paul is reminding Peter. Like he's like, Peter, bro, the gospel isn't just the doorway into a relationship with Jesus. The gospel's the house. Like the gospel's not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel's the A to Z. And any time that we get off our step or our game when it comes to following Jesus, we need to be reminded of the gospel. We don't need more morality to staple to the exterior of our foolishness. We need to be reminded that we are so desperately in need of God and that Jesus came and he loves us and all people equally. The gospel is the great emulsifier and this is the thing that brings us together in harmony. One science lesson and one English lesson. See, the English lesson is this, is that we've got to understand how our labels and our Christianity, how they need to be ordered. See, what was happening with Peter is that his crew, their actions were inconsistent with their own convictions about the truth of the gospel. They were more influenced by their common racial identity as Jews than by their new experience of unity in Christ with all believers of every race. See, when Christianity becomes your new identity, it trumps your tradition. It supersedes your skin. 
and it comes before your culture. So Tony Evans, he's an African-American preacher. Look him up. He's amazing. And he had a hot take on something that I thought was pretty good. And here's what he said. He said, I don't like phrases like black Christian. He, he is a black Christian, okay? Just to let you know. I don't like phrases like black Christian. I don't like phrases like white Christian. I don't like phrases like American Christian. He's an American. And I don't like phrases like Hispanic Christian. He, he says that when you, when you have phrases like that, you have the, the, the label in the wrong adjectival position. So let me give you the English lesson. You have, you have adjectives and nouns, right? Adjectives and nouns. Work with me. I, I got a 19 on my ACT, y'all. If I can get this, you can, all right? <laughs> and the adjective, it describes the noun. Okay, you with me? And so the adjective, whatever we put in that adjectival position, it informs the noun. If you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or your culture in the adjective position, then you have to keep shaping the noun so it looks like the adjective. So if your color stays in the adjectival position, you've gotta keep shaping Christianity to look black or to look white or to look red. And what Evans is saying is that you've got to not become a black Christian, a white Christian, a red Christian, but you've got to be a Christian first. You've gotta be a Christian before white. You've gotta be a Christian before black. You've gotta be a Christian before Spanish. And it doesn't take 240 years to fix this. It just takes about two minutes and 40 seconds. And right now, if some of you are thinking I'm trying to remove your whiteness or remove your Americanness or remove your blackness, I'm not trying to do that at all. I'm just trying to improve your Christianity. You are a Christian first. And anytime we get that twisted, we join the ranks of Peter and we need correction. And the gospel, it's a game changer, y'all. But it's only a game changer when it moves from the way we speak to the way we live. See, we've got too many broke solutions for our woke problems. We've got too many broke solutions for our woke problems. Like, for some of us, woke will never be woke enough to solve our issues. Like, the minority is on pace to become the majority, and then what? Like, we're running to solution after solution when God has shown us that the way to rot sin from the inside out is to live out the gospel. So you can post black squares all day. You can chant black lives matter. You can speak out against the hegemony through the logic of critical race theory. You can function as an ethnic Gnostic which believes that you don't understand what it's like to be in my skin. And you can propagate cultural Marxism as reasons and solutions, but they will not bring about the reconciliation that you long for. Only the gospel will. And Paul is proving to the Galatians over and over and over by the way that he's defending the gospel as the only hope for mankind by saying you can't add something to the gospel. The gospel stands on its own two legs. But listen, it has to be lived out. Like why is hip hop united races and classes in our nation more than the gospel? because we preach the gospel that can bring racial reconciliation, 
but we didn't live it out. So how did we do that? Well, Paul, he goes on to give this stalwart of a Bible verse, and many of you, you've memorized this verse, you've been in church some time, and you've heard this verse, but it's in the context of this dilemma that he's been navigating, and here's the verse, Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Point number three, and finally, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down. How, work, how woke gets to work. How woke gets to work. Like Paul, he's saying that if you want woke to work, if you want to begin to put some feet to this thing, you've got to first die to yourself and you've got to live by faith. Here's a hot take. The gospel will end racism. Here's where I get that. Revelation 5, we get this vision for what heaven's going to be like. And there's going to be this big party in heaven where there's going to be every language, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, all together celebrating diversity in unity and singing to the glory of Jesus. And I don't know if there's anybody that's here tonight that says, why we got to wait till we die to enjoy that party? Why can't we start a little heaven on earth? And why can't we start beginning to fight for diversity and unity? That's the vision that God gives us, that the gospel can end racism and we can begin to propagate that and perpetuate that today. And the gospel is always on the right side of history. And when we have this vision, it motivates us to strive towards that end now. Another way that you can allow woke to get to work is that you gotta pray. If you post more than you pray, that's a problem. If you fight with people more than you fast for people, that's a problem. That prayer, it allows us to lament, to decry to God the injustices of our day. It also allows us to get the grace we need to face the day in a way that brings God glory. So we gotta pray. Next thing we gotta do is we gotta see what God sees. Now, this is what Dr. King, Martin Luther King, he said this. He said, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. He said, the whole concept of the imago Dei, as is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have any substantial unity with God outright, but that every man has the capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness, a give, a gives him a worth, it gives him a dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation, that there are no gradations in the image of God. You can see this quote pop up behind me, that, that every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man and every woman is made in the image of God. And one day we will learn that, yes, we will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. That Dr. King, he's, he's envisioning the world like, like keys. I don't know if y'all see seen a keyboard like this one that's to my left right here. That there's black keys, there's white keys, there's keys that sound different, but they all come together, and under the banner of Christ, they have harmony. And so here's the takeaway. We need to have piano combos. We need to have piano combos. That God has given you experience, perspective, and we need to begin to cross-pollinate, and we need to begin to have conversations with people that aren't like us. And we need to live this thing out. One of the most segregated times 
is about 9.30 on Sunday morning because the church still hasn't figured out how to integrate that well. And it starts just with a conversation. Now, you have words, and you need to use them wisely and strategically. And so use your words to seek perspective from somebody that's different than you. Learn, if you're a majority, learn from the minority about double consciousness. Learn about their history. Let them learn about your history. Learn about the struggles that they've been through. Share the struggles you've been through. Share the victories that you've had. Share how you each see the world and have harmony. And there's harmony when both parties have a gospel focus. Now, there's going to be some uncomfortable conversations, all right? And so if you're in the minority class and somebody in the majority class asks you really kind of a dumb question, don't be like, that's a dumb question. You're a racist, all right? Like, be gracious, please. And maybe you need to be like Paul and help them see what they can't see. And if you get called out, maybe you need to be like Peter. And we don't get to see in Galatians what happens, but we see in Peter's writings that he urges people to clothe themselves with humility. And I would contend to believe that if Peter doesn't repent and realize what Paul's saying is true, that he is operating as a hypocrite, then he wouldn't go on to be the great leader that he was. And so Peter gets corrected by Paul, and he humbly receives the correction. And we need to reclaim this type of dialogue in our body, in our church. That the world should not be the only one that's trying to solve this problem. We have the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus. We have the mandate of love, if you know Jesus. We have the hope that is in Christ. We should come together and talk. And we should call out racism clearly and lovingly. So that's what Paul's doing. He goes to Peter and he says, hey, let me make an observation. You are leading people wayward, even Barnabas. Bro, and he corrects them lovingly and clearly and he goes to him in person, face to face. He doesn't tweet about him. He, he, he doesn't use the Christian jargon, we need to pray for Peter. Let me share with you what he's doing. He goes to Peter. Another thing that we need to do is that we need to get educated. The world has redefined terms that the Bible has introduced into society. I don't know if you know that. And so when some people talk about justice and you're talking about justice and it feels like we're all on the same team, we're not on the same team. Because of how they might define justice versus what God defines as justice. When, when the world uses terms like racism or, or majority minority, I mean, we've got to make sure that we are educated to be able to enter, in, engage in this type of conversation. And so you need to get educated so that you can righteously spar with people if the occasion arises and you can know your stuff. We need to use our words wisely and strategically. There was a woman in Missouri this last year and she was reading the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and she read the term of racism, and she thought it was incomplete. And so instead of getting her girls together, her guys together, like, can you believe even Miriam Webster, they ain't even about it, they ain't even woke. Here's what she did. She wrote to Miriam Webster. She voiced, used her words, and voiced her opinion to the decision maker, and they redefined racism. This young adult woman in Missouri 
help bring more clarity from her experience. One of our young adults, he was down in the plaza during all the protests. And what he did, instead of joining the, the ranks of everyone else saying, you know, whatever they were saying down there and protesting and yelling at whatever business owners and all this stuff and, and trying to take a stand for a right thing and some people were doing it right, some people weren't doing it right. And, but what he decided to do is I'm going to take a fold-out table. I'm going to get pieces of paper in envelopes. I'm going to get the addresses and the phone numbers for all of the decision makers that we have voted into place. And I'm going to have all of the people that are at the protest give them an opportunity to allow their words to be sent strategically. And this is a good use of your words. Write your representatives. Get involved in the fray. The next way you can allow woke to get to work is that you got to integrate the gospel in your life, man. Some of you are into hip-hop. Man, use hip-hop with the gospel lens. Some of you are into TikTok. Use TikTok with a gospel lens. Some of you are into business. You need to use business with a gospel lens. We need to allow the gospel to integrate all of our spheres of influence. Man, if the church would rise up, we could change the tide of certain things. But we've got to allow the gospel not just to be a Sunday or a Tuesday thing. We've got to allow the gospel to go to work. There was a guy in the 18th century, and his mom really just envisioned that he was going to you know, change the world someday, but she died when he was seven. And when she died, a lot died with this guy. By the time he was at the age of 11, he went on his first sailing trip with his dad. His dad actually owned sailboats back in the day where they were merchant ships. And so at age 11, he starts to learn how to be a sailor and all the stuff that goes with it, right? Like he learns how to cuss like a sailor. If you're a Navy man, I'm no, no offense. He learns how to like, like be in that world with all these older guys and he's measuring up. So much so that by the time he's 19, he joins the slave trade, and he starts working on these ships that are going down to Africa, and they're robbing people from their homes. And he acquires quite the reputation. He was pretty rambunctious. And he was even from time to time beaten because he, he didn't obey his captain, and he was treated like the slaves. And at one point, he was actually sold into slavery for himself, and he gets malaria, and, and the person that was supposed to take care of him, they mistreated him, and he's just kind of a bad guy in a bad situation doing bad things. One of the things he said when he thought about God from time to time, he said, and I quote, I often saw the necessity of religion as a means of escaping hell, but I love to sin and was unwilling to forsake it. Some of you are right where this guy was. And, and you're here because, if you're being honest, you just kind of want to escape hell. That you just kind of see this as, as an insurance plan, as doing a good deed. So maybe when you die someday, God will see, yeah, you were there on a Tuesday night. But maybe you're like this guy and you know deep down inside that you love sin. And so this guy, he, he loved his sin. He embraced it and he went on in this way of life, slave trading, doing bad things, so much so he gets on this ship called the Greyhound and it was on the Greyhound that he was known as the, the, the great debaucher, the, the, the great blasphemer, you know? I mean, he was the worst guy on the whole boat. The boat starts to go down and he starts praying. He says, God, if you will save me, I will serve you. Fast forward, he's saved, he's a young adult. His life is saved, but he's not serving God. 
And he remembers this. He starts reading his Bible from time to time, but his heart hasn't changed. He gets malaria. And it's while he's on his deathbed with malaria that he says, all right, God, I'm going all in. Some of y'all have been there, right? God, I promise if you get me out of this, I'll do this. And then you're just like, verse of the day. And then then something really bad happens again. You're like, God, remember when I said, like, I made it this time. And so that was this guy. And he made a decision in his life to ask God to save him. And so here's what happened. He now has his own slave trading ship. He's a follower of Jesus. And you would think the next thing he would do was to sell his slave trading ship. But not this guy. He starts leading prayer meetings and worship services with his crew on his slave trading ship. That he's following Jesus while trafficking people. And as he looked back in his life, he said this. He said, the custom, the example, and the commercial interest had blinded my eyes. I think every one of us would be like, bro, you can't follow Jesus and traffic people. And as clear as we can see that, I think that most of us can relate to this guy's story more than we really want to admit. Because some of you are here and you have made a decision like this guy did. You're like, man, I'm following Jesus, I'm praying, I'm coming to worship services, but you're trying to reconcile your sex life with following Jesus. You're trying to reconcile the way you treat substances with following Jesus. You're trying to reconcile your anxiety, your self-righteousness, your whatever with following Jesus because of the customs that are in our culture, because of the examples that you've been given. And this guy, after four years of leading prayer meetings and worship services on his slave trading ship, gets woke. And he sells his ship, and he lets his woke go to work. He becomes a pastor and begins to decry the abomination of the slave trade. He influences a guy named William Wilberforce, who ushers into history the abolition of the slave trade in England. And the man at the end of his life, as he recalled all that had happened, He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. How does a man who has done such terrible things, has lived such hypocritical ways, accomplish such great things? How does a man get forgiven and then get released to end the thing that he once perpetuated? John Newton would say it's grace. In fact, he would say that it's amazing grace. And somewhere along the way, this young boy who became a slave trader, who then became a pastor, wrote a song that we're gonna stand and sing here in a minute called Amazing Grace. And as we sing that song, I want you to think about your life and all the things that God is calling you to engage in. And I wanna challenge you to stay woke and to get to work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. Gotta thank you for my friends. I pray you'd help us to Take seriously what you take seriously. 
God, I pray for my friends that have had a, a bad go, God, that they've, they've felt the sting and the brunt end of racism. God, I pray that you'd help them to find forgiveness and mercy and grace in their heart. But where do they find that but, but from you? Because you're rich in those things. God, I pray that you would help people who are unaware. God, I pray you'd give them awareness. Uh, for the young adult that's thinking, I don't struggle with this, God, I pray that you'd help them to see that Peter probably didn't think he struggled with this either. But God, I pray that you'd help people like Paul to come into our life and help us see what we can't see. At the end of the day, God, I pray we would declare how amazing your grace is and it would change us from the inside out and you would rot the divisions that are plaguing our society. In Christ's name, amen.